I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. Before we start this podcast, I'm with uh, two guys that love golf, so we are talking masters, and I'm here with uh, none other than Mr. Dea Pranas. Hello, everybody. Big Tiger Woods fan here. Big Tiger Woods fan. But we're not going to talk golf today. We're going to talk something way more exciting. We're going to talk bonds. <laughs> Round of applause for bonds. Uh, I uh, labeled this article Bondastrophe. Kind of the first thing that I thought of when I was writing this was there's these memorable moments in history where like, I feel like most people that understand financial markets, even lightly, are going to be like Black Monday, Great Depression, financial crisis, dot-com bubble. Like All of those things kind of come to mind. They're seared in our brains, right? All those things didn't have to do with all of the financial markets. They had to do with the stock market. But there's this other thing called the bond market, which is quite big. And something happened in the first quarter of 2022 that maybe I want to ask you, because you're a financial nerd like me, I just feel like no one's talking about it. Like, I feel like if you're in the space of financial nerddom and you're reading those type of articles, you're hearing about it. But I don't feel like it's making headline news. I agree with you that I think the the total return on bonds or how negative it is, uh, and it's, like you said, it's a three standard deviation event. Um, I don't think that's making news, but people are talking about yields a lot. And I th- obviously those things are related and how much yields are going up. So it's not interpreted in the sense of whatever's going on as bonds is affecting portfolios now, but just how yields are affecting the price of all asset classes, especially with the rapidity which they've increased this year. Totally. I- I'm guessing, and I'm trying to do this from memory, but in 2008, you can't go to a pickup basketball game or go to a bar with a couple of friends without talking about the stock market, right? That's not happening today with the bond market. So is it fair for me to say that the bonds are in a quote-unquote 2008 moment for bonds? Yeah, that's absolutely fair to say. Just given how unlikely that print this quarter has been for bonds. It's been a horrific quarter by all measures for the bond market. And we're not going to make any financial recommendations on this podcast, but technically, from an attractiveness standpoint, when something like that happens, when we look at 2008, and we look at kind of that postmortem, what stocks do after that, it then looks like an attractive time to buy stocks, right? But why are people not excited about buying bonds today? Well, I think that generally speaking, when people see price declines, people are less wired to say, oh, okay, let's add more money to something that's been going down. They are they are more likely to do that as stocks, but that I think that's only been a recency thing since about 2008 when you see a lot of these huge V-shaped recoveries. Uh, but generally speaking, I think when any sort of asset class has seen some distress, people by their nature want to uh, avoid it. Uh, I think the bond market, it's very hard for people to understand how they are going to get their, their money back. Uh, and bonds is a, it's an asset class where you really have to understand the downside because the upside is limited unlike it is in the stock market. So if they're looking at this and they're saying, oh, I'm not going to get much upside, uh, potentially the thought is uh, let's get out of it and get into something that's going to do good like stocks. When you have to realize that uh, asset classes move in different ways with respect to each other, and that's why we obviously are huge advocates of a portfolio approach. And when you look at the sell-off in bonds, uh, sell-off in bonds are obviously related. They're connected to each other. The moment somebody sells, uh, you see selling pressure in the bond market, the yields go up. And when those yields go up, that creates more of a valuation opportunity in the bond market. So 
All that is to say is that people are trying to get out of the bond market now when the bond market is a lot more attractive now than it was uh, three, four months ago. And I'll highlight one thing that you said that I think hits the nail on the head for me and what I've been hearing from clients or other advisors saying, hey, my clients are asking me this, what should I be saying? You basically said bonds got punched in the face and they still don't have this kind of asymmetrical upside or attractiveness. So the logic that you're hearing is like, I just got punched in the face for like five or 6% trying to grab 2%. So why am I trying to pick up pennies in front of a steamroller? That's probably a good question to ask you. How do you, when you have clients that call in and inevitably present that argument, how do you, how do you approach that? Yeah, I wrote about it in the article and I want you to poke holes in my argument because maybe it's not fair, but I was just saying that I walk into, if I'm going to be a bond owner, I walk into an expectation of what I think my returns are going to be. So if I'm going to go out and buy a treasury bond, right when I buy it, I'm going to look at the yield and I'm going to think, man, that's probably a fair estimate of the return I should expect from this particular instrument. So I'm walking in with muted return expectations. What bonds did in the first quarter, does it bum me out? Yeah, I guess it kind of does. Was it disappointing? Yeah, but it's because it was a rare event. I think I felt that way in 2008, right? So when you have something which is a second or third standard deviation event, meaning it's outside of the norm, you should be surprised because something outside of the norm happened. But again, when that downside or or getting punched in the mouth is 5 or 6%, feels a lot better than 50 or 60%, uh, which we talked about in this article, that there are times where the stock market has done that. And the recovery periods are a lot longer. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I kind of go back to that same place is the whole reason I went out and bought bonds was to match a short-term liability. It wasn't for some sort of high expectation on returns. Got you. I think that sounds like a fairly intuitive way to to get the client to understand the need of owning this in the first place. And uh, I think most would take a portfolio approach to trying to understand, uh, you know, the role of bonds in a portfolio. So to me, if somebody, because I've heard clients say that before, and it doesn't just extend to bonds, it's just anything is doing bad, really. Uh, The question is, hey, why don't we get rid of this stock? It hasn't done well. Or why don't we get rid of emerging markets? I have to start from the same place, which is, uh, here's how we construct the portfolio, and here's why these pieces are important in the portfolio. And then you have to give a broad context and uh, talk about how these different aspects move, you know, don't exactly move in lockstep with each other and why it's important to have these in here for a full market cycle. You know, we do our homework to try to understand the range of outcomes of different asset classes and bonds having done what they did. We knew that there was some sort of risk to the downside. We never would have guessed that bonds would be down this much in the quarter, but we had already downweighted bonds in all client portfolios relative to historical standards because we knew that, uh, you know, given what bonds were yielding, there's a little bit more risk to the downside than the upside. That being said, you don't know what's going to happen. Even from today to the end of this year, bonds could rally. I don't know. You could see a flight to safety. You could see uh, a lot of buying of sovereign debt and uh, yields going down. So because we don't know what's going to happen, it's important to kind of have uh, capital market expectations for asset classes. And then wait accordingly, and then that way you can maintain that portfolio approach, even when some aspects of those portfolios are doing worse than you might have might have thought. You know, I think a lot of clients feel is that if they go through kind of my fact pattern or my logic that I presented, they're they're going to conclude like, 
Yeah, but the the upside is two or two and a half percent. And since the upside feels defined, and yes, I know interest rates could drop and you could get uh, you can get a tailwind as much as you're feeling the headwind in the first quarter. I'm not I'm not denying that. But since it's defined and it's like a low single digit number, it kind of lets the mind go wild. And it's like, but stocks, they could be anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there, there's there's no limitation technically to the upside. It, it could be anything. And I've mentioned on this podcast before, but it's a clip I love from Family Guy um, at the end of uh, a presentation for um, uh, a timeshare. Um, Lois and uh, mm. Peter, uh, they, they basically said, you sat through this timeshare so you can get a boat or you can get the mystery box. And Peter turns to Lois and he's like, we've got to take the mystery box. I mean, it could be anything. It could even be a boat, you know, if you wanted <laughs> one of those. So this idea of no defined return lets people's curiosities go wild and it lets somebody fall in love with what stocks could be. And, and I, I often see it with, you know, I remember, you know, you go through a stage of life where all your friends are dating before they get married and, and things of that nature. And I remember when somebody would go to a first or second date, they didn't know the person well enough, Right. So the gap between who the person was and what they actually knew, they just filled it with perfection. You know mm. what I mean? It, that's just what our minds like to do. So I, I feel like bonds are just the ugly duckling right now. Maybe then it's probably a good idea in a conversation like that to set the expectations around potential pitfalls and dangers in the equity market. The equity market is absolutely not, uh, you know, it's just going to grind up every year and we're going to collect at a minimum of 10% or we made 30% last year, probably going to make 30% this year. Uh, the equity market ha- can have significant drawdowns. And especially in a year like this where there's uh, high levels of volatility and likely to be sustained high levels of volatility, you have uh, a conflict in uh, Eastern Europe that is still – there's no resolution in sight. You have inflation pressures that uh, that seem to be sustained, do not seem to be transitory. And you have a Fed that is essentially saying it's going to aim all its artillery at the equity market. Um, so it's un, it's un, unclear. We do feel like we are invested in stocks that are going to be able to weather the, these storms. But it's unclear what pricing pressures will be like in the short term. So if I was a client, this is precisely a period where I would feel a bit nervous about uh, taking a bunch of money out of bonds and th- throwing it in the stock market. I think if somebody says that, they don't fully understand, I believe, the risks inherent in, in equities. Yeah, and I talked a little bit about the article, and we'll get back to it, about this idea of asset and liability matching. But another way to say that, I think if you go to somebody and you say, hey, could cash outperform stocks for a decade? Um, they might laugh at you. You know, one in a million chance. They might say something like that, but it has happened. It's happened. Yeah. So it's it's not like, um, you know, not like Jim Carrey asking like, hey, is, do I got a chance? Like one in a million, tell me I got a chance. No, <laughs> like it actually has happened. So you need to understand that because it is very difficult to be patient for the long haul. It's very difficult to be patient for a decade. And I often tell people, go back, you know, close your eyes. Where were you 10 years ago? So for me, for, for Trevor Cummings, my life looked absolutely different 10 years ago. So I think that's an important thing for folks to think about is that high-quality bonds are usually used as a solution for something in the short term. Uh, and that is what they were intended for. Uh, yes, and that's why they're so essential to, uh, to a part of a diversified portfolio. And also keep in mind that uh, the equity market, just like the bond market, changes in its level 
of attraction over time. It's not just as attractive today as it was yesterday or it's not just attractive tomorrow as it will be today. That that attractive level keeps changing based on uh, many different factors. If markets sell off, uh, if markets sell off very, very rapidly, it's just like uh, when uh, you go into a retail store and you see something trading at a bargain. It's probably it might be a good time to buy it, and if you want to buy it, it's good to have potential sources of liquidity. And if the bond market has done relatively well in this period, you'll look to tap some of those bonds as a source of liquidity to add to the equity market. So having a source of liquidity, especially in a uh, yield generating uh, part of your portfolio, I think will uh, help with with wealth building and uh, higher longer term returns. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's important to understand the set the expectations around the diff- different asset classes in the right way. I think it's just such a danger. Some of these, uh, maybe the 2020 extraordinarily sharp V shaped recovery, and I, I feel that this there's this crazy buying on a dip mentality going on right now that I think is problematic and could end up hurting a lot of people because not every time the market drops a lot, it's going to go back up with the speed at which it dropped. If you consult the historical record, it's actually pretty rare. I feel like setting those expectations, you really have to broaden out the historical spectrum. And it's, I think it's really difficult people to, for people to see that entire spectrum in the right time-weighted way and, and not to be too governed by what's happened uh, you know, in the last two years or so. March of 2020 did us a disservice. It as, did. As investors. It did. I agree. Because in, in 2008, I don't remember the exact timing on it, but you had a, about a six-month period where you took a 50% drop. And then you had about a four-year recovery um, to yep, kind of slog out of it. And where were you four years ago? Four years ago, um, it, again, it, when you when you kind of anchor towards your own life and look back, it's very different today than four years. And if you're retired and you're, you're no longer adding to your portfolio and you get a statement every month and you look at the value, when you see a value, you know, to the, uh, October 2007 – and you're getting that statement every month, and you're like, man, when am I going to hit that 2007 number again? Uh, It's Mm -hmm. in your face. Yes. And uh, it's something that you'll have to contend with. And if something like that does happen, you'll be glad you weren't 100% invested in equities. And you'll be glad you at least have some more money to put to work in a recovery. uh, And you didn't just wait till the first 10% dropped to go all in in the equity market. So I think this buying on the dip mentality, well, generally speaking, it's a good thing in my in my opinion, it's gotten very very far, and people don't understand uh, the risks. and And what the Fed's trying to do is interesting. It's similar to what happened in uh, ninety nine two thousand, where you saw a huge equity market crash, but it didn't metastasize in the overall economy. Unemployment uh, rates stayed relatively muted, and GDP growth was relatively okay as well. So it seems that the Fed might be trying to engineer a similar situation. It's very difficult to 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 foretell if they're going to be able to do that, uh, where the market takes a hit and the economy stays okay, I I don't know. I don't I don't think that's likely. But there is definitely a scenario where the market doesn't do that great, and uh, if that's the case, you'll be glad you have some money in bonds. Yeah, I think I differ probably from the traditional portfolio design. And you and I have talked about this mm-hmm. a, a lot. I think the the traditional way to do it is behavioral. Right, they'll lead with a risk survey to get an understanding of one's comfortability with volatility and drawdowns, and then they will match that to 
the historical records for bonds and historical records for stocks. And, and a lot of it anchors around getting to kind of that same place of like 60% stocks and 40% bonds. I don't totally look at it that way. Uh, and you had a name for it. I forgot what you told me, but I, I kind of look at it as what are those short-term liabilities? And for me, the short-term liabilities aren't always defined as college tuition or the purchase of a new home. Sometimes it's just like maybe you lose your job and you need two or three years to kind of pivot and get back to where you were or something surprising happens. So I'm usually helping a client look at like, what are your actual expenses? Let's multiply that by two or three or four. And let's just have this side pocket of money in high quality bonds so that if if something was disrupted, you know that like three or four years uh, are right there that you can kind of grab from the ATM machine. And is that amount is different for every client, I assume. Yeah, I think there's a little part of behavioral in it where I'll, I'll walk through with somebody saying like, I don't know, like the help you sleep at night kind of thought is, is, is that a couple years or is that four years? But I really like them to anchor that high quality bucket or high quality bonds to their expenses. I, I like them to think of it as a multiple of their expenses because I think the other route when you go behavioral, they're thinking in percentages of their portfolio. And, and I feel like a lot of people have built up really strong balance sheets that really overshadow their their expenses. And I think their expenses are what make what make them unique. Does that make sense? I think you've used a term before on, on kind of the, how that's designing portfolio. Uh, Just you sent me an article. Beh- behavioral asset allocation or something like that? Uh, I don't know. For me, behavioral is kind of like the traditional. So Okay, okay. Uh, just on a cash flow, it's almost like cash flow planning and portfolio allocation uh, meet each other. Yeah, exactly. It's a hybrid, I guess, of right, the two. Right, some sort of hybrid. So for me, and again, maybe I'm not taking it serious enough for being like empathetical, but for, for me, for clients that are coming to me that are upset about how bonds have behaved in the first three months, I'm just kind of going back to the same place. Like this bucket was really just intended to be a backup plan. Uh, and it's still the same multiple of expenses or close to uh, of what it is. Maybe we need to add even a little bit extra mm-hmm. to there. But my mindset of those haven't really changed. Does that make sense? And like I said, because they're not needing to tap that ATM machine right now, I, I guess I feel like what we're experiencing right now is temporary, not permanent. How do you think the conversation will change if there is a rapid sell-off? Well, it obviously will change, right? Okay. Because then, then it'll change and it'll say things like, well, I mean, that's the weird thing. I guess humans are humans. Mm-hmm. So we can go back and read old newspapers and people were behaving the same 30 years ago. So the conversations that we're having this year are what? About high quality and boring bonds and emerging markets because those are the blemishes in a portfolio. But we have to go back to people and say, hey, want to hear a funny definition of diversification? There'll always be something in your portfolio that's disappointing you. Right. Uh, there'll be some sort of blemish. So I'm trying to get clients to say, hey, let's look at the sum of the parts. Right. Let's look at how that outcome looks like. And then also understand one of the things that the Bonsa Group, we manage a lot of uh, the portfolio internally, like our core dividend portfolio and things like that. And then we provide tools, uh, technology where clients can kind of see all the parts. You know what I mean? Like inside of like a a traditional mutual fund or something like that, you just see the sum of the parts, right? Mm -hmm. You don't see all the underlying unless you really, really dig. So it's almost like, uh, I don't know, like ignorance is bliss in that that sense because right now I find a lot of clients may be happy with the total outcome, but they want to focus on a discussion about a part. And, And sometimes I'm reminding them like, hey, this part we're talking about, good conversation, glad you asked the question. But, and this is not a bad thing, 
but it's 4% of your whole portfolio. So even an ugliness here isn't going to have a huge attribution to the bottom line. Mm. But I guess it's just human behavior. Um, the focal point is whatever's the ugliest. Yeah, exactly. And I I've, I've often have um, multiple conversations like that as well. For whatever reason, people are drawn to what's not doing well and they want to get rid of it. <laughs> when uh, maybe that kind of intuition works in normal life in other areas, but it's the exact counterintuition you need uh, for for a good and disciplined portfolio approach. And it's uh, – it's really, yeah, just trying to get to the philosophy why that belongs there in the first place and uh, what the range of outcomes are. And I, I, to me, it's always part of a larger discussion. But it's, uh, yeah, that that type of framing around what you know what what shows red in the portfolios is very common. And it's, uh, I, I find myself trying to have the same conversations, but in different in different ways. Yeah, it's the Instagram culture, right? You get 10 or 12 people together that haven't seen each other in a long time. Like, oh, let's take a picture. And then somebody takes a picture and everybody's smiling. Everyone's looking at the camera. Everything's good. And then one person's like, oh, I don't really like my hand placement. Yeah, yeah. So it's like everything's perfect, but they're like, oh, let's just retake the photos. So yeah. um, it, it seems like uh, when people grab their pruning shears, they just want to prune whatever's red. It, there's so many different labels in our industry, and uh, I feel sorry for listeners a lot of the time because financial jargon is is so uh, j- abundant. And uh, some people use it in different ways. When some people say value, maybe they mean something slightly different. When somebody else says value, or when some people say growth, maybe they maybe they're talking about revenue growth, and maybe somebody else is talking about uh, you know just how high a multiple is on a stock. I don't know. But when we say bonds, we're being very very specific to the highest quality sectors of the bond market. Um, And when other people say bonds, they're talking about all sorts of bonds. They're talking about high yield bonds. They're talking about floating rate instrument bonds. They're talking about emerging market bonds. When we say bonds, we mean essentially treasuries. Uh, There's there's agencies and stuff too, but essentially the highest quality and essentially risk-free bonds, ones that are the most affected in a scenario like this year where the economy seems to be doing well, but rates have increased a lot. Those are also the bonds that are going to be the most stable in a in a very distressed environment. So is that something you also find yourself repeating a lot? Or do you think that because of the way we label it and because of the way we break up our performance, uh, that that's not a conversation you have to repeat often? Yeah, what you're referring to is that sometime in 2020, David went into – locked himself in his room, David Bonson, and and kind of penned this idea that we internally call Operation Magnify. And it was a way that, uh, whatever you want to call it, like taxonomy or, or classification, that we were going to be able to bundle together different investments based on what a client should expect and how they would behave into these categories. And we kind of came with these seven categories uh, where we looked at liquidity and return, expectations, and volatility, and all that. So as part of that process... We took the word bonds, which for our listeners, what a bond is means that you're lending money to somebody. And who that somebody is matters a lot, right? The terms of that loan matter a lot. So we thought the financial industry did a really bad job at lumping all bonds into one category. So we separated them into boring bonds, and we use that term very intentional, um, and credit. And and the reason we wanted to bifurcate those two is because in credit, whoever you were lending to, the credit quality wasn't the same as lending to the U.S. government. Um, And because of that, there was different liquidity. There was different um, return expectations. 
There was different volatility. There was different defaults. So we needed those two things to be held separately because when we reviewed performance, if we smushed those together, it made it really confusing for clients. Mm. And, and for me, what really stood out uh, about Operation Magnify and why I, I love it, I'm a huge advocate of it, is I heard this one speech from a pastor. Um, it might have been Andy Stanley. I don't remember. Uh, a long time ago about what makes a great leader. And he was on stage and he was kind of trying to get the crowd like, I'm going to tell you one thing that makes a great leader. Um, and, and people were throwing out like charismatic or this or that and like these different features. And he's just clarity. A great leader knows how to provide clarity to the people that are following. And I, I, I would say that has always resonated with me. And my advice to advisors is your job, which is very difficult, is to create clarity. And I would say pre-Operation Magnify, when we were reviewing somebody's bond portfolio, a lot of times David Bonds would use language like, hey, this did better than the average, but it's because we, we cheated using that in a cheeky manner because he was saying like we were leaning in to lower credit quality or different durations or different things like that, and people didn't know what that meant. So ultimately we, we had to separate those two to give people clarity. I, lo- I love that uh, that notion of clarity for a leader. I think being able to communicate and uh, being able to uh, to get that engagement is very difficult to do if you don't say something's very understandable that makes sense and is obviously pertinent to uh, in this case their portfolio. And it's difficult to get people invested in a portfolio and then explain it to them and then they're they totally understand what's going on. Uh, I know we often uh, when you know prospects become clients and oftentimes. Uh, we'll get to look at their previous portfolio and uh, how things are constructed, and maybe they own two thousand different uh, securities across every single asset class in in capital markets. And uh, I just don't understand how anybody was able to provide clarity with a portfolio construction like that. So, I I think that's uh, one of the most important things that we've done money management wise in this in this group is those classifications and. Uh, it's the, the the reasoning is because we disagreed with industry classifications. The way the industry would define bonds was different than how we thought about bonds, and we wanted to uh, to break that out in our performance reporting and show clients uh, exactly what we meant and why that that was a better way of classifying uh, securities than the broader industry. And we do the same thing uh, with equities, and the way we think about value and growth is different as well. Um, you know, so to give you an example, oh, I can't say specific securities, I guess. <laughs> you cannot. Okay, okay. Uh, but I, I think everybody catches my drift. Yeah, no. Uh, and, and I would say um, to kind of wrap us up a little bit, and I, I want to create clarity in, in my conclusion. So, like, do I think bonds have an appropriate place in portfolios today as they did yesterday? Yes. Am I helping clients from a financial planning perspective design portfolios today? Today, that includes high-quality bonds, I am. So my encouragement to investors is if this first quarter to 2022, you were disappointed or surprised by bonds, you should have been. It was an abnormal event that I don't even – I'd have to go back, but I don't even think it's happened in like the last 40 years. So yes, it's okay. It's okay to be surprised. It's okay to be frustrated. But what it's not okay is for it to then – change your whole plan going forward because something that happens rarely is not as likely to happen again 
right after it. And I'm not saying that the perfect way, which I'm not giving clarity, but like it's like people joke about getting struck by lightning twice. It's rare to get struck by lightning and live, I guess. Um, Very rare for that to happen twice. Again, I'm not making a prediction on markets. I'm just telling you as somebody who studies markets, somebody that gives financial advice, this first quarter in 2022 has not changed my convictions or my philosophy or kind of my design approach. Has it for you? No, not at all. And I think the the fact that it's, like you said, it's been the worst quarter in 40 years or whatever the exact year number is, I think that that is a very powerful statement. And that, that statement enough should get them to, you know, whoever's listening to say, okay, this is a massive aberration. Unlikely this will happen again uh, to this degree. Maybe I should stay the course. But maybe that's that. <laughs> that's not that's easier not, said than done. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think an easy way to look at it too. I love the thought of attribution. Not a common word people use, but um, if you have thirty percent of your portfolio in something that went down six percent, to your bottom line, it, it it's a negative one point eight percent. So it, it's also important to look at those blemishes in your portfolio. How does it flow through to the bottom line? Um, and really, if something is a satellite or a peripheral position or a complementary position um, and it has some ugliness, that ugliness does not find its way all the way to your total return of your portfolio. And again, a desire to create clarity, I would have you meditate on that idea of attribution. Um, if somebody has a, a 5% allocation to emerging markets and let's say emerging markets were down 10%, that's half a percent attribution to the bottom line. And and I think when you do that, it helps to give you perspective that um, not everything in a portfolio is going to be perfect if you're diversified. Um, and you should expect that, again, I keep using that word, but there will be blemishes. Like it's, it's unavoidable. You take a picture with 12 or 14 people, somebody blinked, somebody has their hand in the wrong place, uh, somebody's shirt's uh, ruffled a little bit. It's to be expected. Yeah, I think that, uh, that to put it numerically like that, what it actually means to the bottom line, I think is pretty powerful. And maybe even dollar terms too, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I like the fra- the framing of that whole thing and, and trying to give them that uh, historical perspective. So it, things uh, it, things aren't just too in the moment. You need to br- you broaden out uh, the, the, the time window in order to think about things in a balanced way. I just think conviction is such a rare thing. And uh, when somebody's willing to make a wholesale change to their belief or their design or their philosophy uh, based on something that happened, I'm like, meh, uh, you're going to continue to do that. Uh, and you're going to continue to live in the rearview mirror and you're going to continue to be hurt or paralyzed by that. Yes, I have to keep uh, reminding myself of that. Um, I'm somebody, whether it's through training or nature, and uh, you know, I'm sure you're the same way, where it's pretty hard for me to make a decision that is a critical one without a philosophy that's backing that decision. And which, you know, makes it hard to make any sort of, uh, you know, knee jerk decisions that, that, that aren't strategic. So, uh, maybe it's possible that something goes wrong in the portfolio or or there is a blemish, like you said, and it makes us reconsider why we own it in the first place. Just because something goes bad doesn't mean we're always going to hold it. Maybe it went bad for reasons we didn't expect. We have to reevaluate and potentially, Say okay, we made a mistake. Maybe that isn't an asset class that we we think is a secular one, and maybe it, it, it's a tactical one that is in sometimes and out some other times. I don't know, 
Um, but uh, but yeah, I I I I would caution people against making uh, quick decisions that that don't have uh, broad context. I think it's a very dangerous thing for uh, for wealth when it comes to wealth building. We're not intuitively or naturally, or it's not in our DNA to be long-term thinkers. So we have to do things like Jeff Bezos, like creating a thousand year clock or whatever he did. Like we have to force ourselves into paradigms where we try to think longer. I remember hearing a, a, a quantitative investor um, who was buried in statistics and they're, they're talking about is this particular statistic, it was priced a book, uh, is still a viable thing. And, and he was kind of saying, well, we only really have like 20 or 30 years of data for this particular change and how markets are, whatever. He's like, this is not big enough of a sample size yet to like actually make a, 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 a conclusion. And I was like, isn't that wild? Like sometimes we will make decisions based on something we saw happen yesterday, but statisticians will look at like, hey, this isn't a large enough sample size for me to make a conclusion. And those sample sizes need to be robust. Yes, absolutely. And oftentimes it's difficult in markets where you haven't had that many drawdowns with rates this low and you look, try to look back historically and you can't find uh, replicas or something that's even Where close all to the that. variables look exactly right, the same. It so it's always uh, a judgment call and it's one of the reasons why it's, it's challenging to try to have uh, an objective view of things because there's so many different factors. And even when you compare them against a historical context, that's uh, never like for like uh, and it requires uh, – an examination of the nuances and the critical differences and and having to use that to make a decision. Yep. So moral of the story, if you're mad at your bond portfolio, it's okay. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to punch the desk. It's okay to let some steam off with your advisor um, where I want you to uh, remove your hand from the throttle um, is when it comes to making changes. Could this be a time to make a change? It could be. Um, but make sure it's thoughtful. Um, make sure uh, that you have reasons that you've outlined. Um, and remember, some of this high-quality stuff is meant to be a safety net. So if you're removing one safety net and you're on the trapeze, you better be pretty good at that because uh, a fall can then be detrimental. So again, uh, this is why the advisor-client relationship is so important to create clarity, to have communication, to bounce ideas off one another, to collaborate, um, and that's what we're here for. So uh, if that sparks any questions, you can email Tom, T-O-M, at thebonsagroup.com. You can address that to Trevor or Dea. Um, we will ask that you rate the podcast. Five stars are preferred. Comments are welcome. And uh, we'll be back next week with more of our Thoughts, Thoughts on, on Money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. 
The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.